Welcome to Longer Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor at the supporting sponsor of Longer Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this on July 29th, 2020, and this is a a Foundations of Oncology Pharmacy podcast, getting back to our basic bread and butter topics, in this case, talking about gemcitabine. And the reason that we're talking about gemcitabine now is that a couple weeks ago, we learned that uh, notorious RBG, Chief, uh, not Chief Justice, but Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is receiving gemcitabine for some cancer that has, uh, sounds like, spread to her liver. So it seems like a good time uh, to talk about uh, really one of our most commonly used uh, traditional chemotherapy drugs. So gemcitabine brand name Gemzar, also known as 2,2-difluoro-2-deoxycytidine, or uh, DFDC, uh, or sometimes ERIC of solid tumors. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. Uh, I think the key thing there when you heard like the full name is the difluoro, because uh, if you if you know the structure of ERIC of cytarabine, you can pick out gemcitabine from that because you'll see two fluorines attached to that same ring structure. Gemcitabine uh, was first approved by the FDA in 95 or 96, and that was for breast cancer. And then the next approval was for pancreatic cancer. And we've talked about before on this podcast how that pancreatic cancer approval uh, was notable, uh, not just because it showed um, an overall survival benefit compared to 5-FU, but because the primary endpoint in the study that got it approved for pancreatic cancer was quality of life endpoint-based. So there is precedent for approving drugs beyond things like just response rate, believe it or not, and, and uh, progression-free survival or overall survival. When we look at the pharmacology, as I mentioned, you could think of it as cytarabine, but with activity against solid tumors. Uh, it's a nucleoside analog uh, that does require phosphorylation, uh, and that's can be done by uh, thiabidine kinase, but mostly it's deoxycytidine kinase uh, to eventually a mono and then uh, ultimately a triphosphate metabolite. And then that is incorporated into DNA, and there's another base pair that's added after that false base pair, and that uh, then inhibits DNA polymerization. Uh, so it is cell cycle specific, mostly S phase, but does kind of work throughout, uh, you know, the the cycle or other cycles. It appears potentially with the uh, because it may also act as a topisomerase one poison and does also inhibit ribonucleotide reductase. But mostly, it's inhibiting DNA polymerase as a, as a false base pair. Is how I uh, like to think of it. As I am a simple person. Uh, we alluded to this last week, talking about the oral decitabine and the cytidine deaminase inhibitor that's approved with it uh, because gemcitabine is broken down by deoxycytidine deaminase. Um, so it's very similar structurally to cytarabine, but there are some notable differences. First and foremost, cytarabine or ERC really only has activity against hematologic malignancy. So we're talking leukemias, lymphomas, that's the only place you see cytarabine uh, yeah, used. Uh, and the reason for that why gemcitabine, which was designed, um, uh, you know, the, the legend goes by Eli Lilly in the, in the 80s and 90s, was to try and make a, cita- a cytarabine-type drug that had activity against solid tumors. The reason that gemcitabine has activity in solid tumors where cytarabine doesn't, I can't really say, but there are some notable differences that do maybe provide some clues to that uh, to answer that question. One, gemcitabine has much faster and prominent intracellular uptake. It is uh, phosphorylated much faster than ARC to that triphosphate formulation. Uh, and it's phosphorylated faster because it's a, it's a more uh, attractive substrate 
for those kinase enzymes intracellularly in, in cancer cells. Uh, so because it's phosphorylated faster, uh, you can give gemcitabine over a shorter infusion. So uh, the typical dosing of gemcitabine is typically at 1,000 milligrams per meter squared, give or take. Uh, give an IV over 30 minutes every week, uh, typically three weeks on, one week off maybe two weeks on, three weeks off for some patients. Uh, the original pancreatic cancer indication is actually seven weeks on, one week off for the first eight weeks, then three weeks on, one week off. No one does the seven on, one off um, due to toxicity reasons. And it's usually given over 30 minutes. Now, this is very different than cytarabine if you think about the seven plus three regimen for AML induction where you give seven days of cytarabine uh, over 24-hour infusion, so seven times 24 hours. That's a huge continuous infusion. Um, and that is to, to allow cytarabine to be phosphorylated uh, to its active form, uh, to its active metabolite for every single leukemia cells that enters the S phase. It's cell cycle specific. But gemcitabine can be given, and it's effective with just a short 30-minute infusion given weekly because of that high intracellular retention of that active triphosphate metabolite, which is pretty cool. Now, one thing that folks have noticed, and you can, if you uh, do a PubMed search, and it's really easy these days to limit you know, to say like 19, I don't know, 19, uh, 1990 to 1997, you'll see a ton of cytobine studies where they're looking at intracellular concentrations of the triphosphate, uh, and they're giving this over uh, with a, a regimen called the FDR fixed dose rate, and that's 10 milligrams per meter squared per minute. So for 1,000 milligrams per meter squared, it's a 100-minute infusion. And the idea behind this is when you give it over a longer period of time, you actually increase the intracellular retention of that active metabolite even more than what you get. Now, that has consistently been shown by giving it over a longer period of time to have higher levels uh, inside the cancer cells of that triphosphate metabolite, but also consistently shows more hematologic toxicity without showing any improvement in outcomes. So we don't use it. But if you're an oncology pharmacy specialist or in training to do so, that is something that would be expected to know uh, in case the question comes up, um, you know, can we give this gemcitabine over, say, 60 minutes instead of 30 minutes? Don't know why that question will come. But if it does, uh, no, because you'll have more toxicity. So that's an important thing to know about uh, administering the drug. Uh, as far as renal dysfunction, there's no dose adjustments. Just, like, don't give it, don't give gemcitabine and then give someone dialysis right afterwards. Uh, now, Dose adjustment for hepatic dysfunction is a common clinical uh, conundrum because it's used for pancreatic cancer, which commonly spreads uh, to the liver, or cholangiocarcinoma, which uh, affects, affects the liver as well. And while it's not necessarily metabolized hepatically, it does have some hepatotoxicity. So there are concerns and some uh, kind of empiric dose adjustments recommended. The, the PI doesn't really offer any insight. Uh, however, there is a nice, uh, I call it a case series, uh, by Tusink and Hall in Annals of Pharmacotherapy in 2010. And I know of this because Hall was my uh, program director and Tusink uh, was a PGY1 resident when I was a PGY2 resident at MUSC. And they went back and looked at patients receiving gemcitabine who had a really high total bilirubin, above 5. And what they did was they looked at patients who got normal-dose gemcitabine, and they looked, did they have any excess hematologic toxicity? And they, they fairly clearly showed in this case series there wasn't any uh, excess uh, myelosuppression in, in the terms of white blood count, uh, absolute neutrophil count, or platelets. Um, so it, it does appear hematologically safe to give gemcitabine to p patients with an elevated bilirubin 
despite the warnings that you'll see in some tertiary drug information resources. However, what is unclear is if there's added hepatotoxicity uh, in giving gemcitabine to those, these folks with some hepatic dysfunction because gemcitabine can be hepatotoxic. Um, and so clinicians are often left with a scenario where we have a patient who might benefit from gemcitabine. They've got elevated uh, bilirubin and LFTs, and you give gemcitabine, and then the liver numbers get worse. Do they get worse because gemcitabine was... Uh, hepatotoxic, or did it get worse because the gemcitabine did not work in a difficult-to-treat disease, and they had liver progression of their disease, leading to worsening of their LFTs, bilirubin, things like that? Unanswered question, we will say. So that is certainly a, a uh, shared decision-making conversation that needs to happen if that goes on. Now, I've alluded to where we use this with regards to pancreatic cancer. Its first approval was breast cancer. Um, uh, in breast cancer, often used a single agent with pancreatic cancer, single agent plus or minus NAB, paclitaxel, brand name Abraxane, uh, used in non-small cell lung cancer, especially squamous cell, where we don't use pemetrexid. Uh, it's used in bladder or urothelial uh, carcinoma uh, in combination with either cysts or carboplatinum. It's used in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, even though cytarabine has activity in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, there is, uh, there are at least, there is at least one uh, gemcitabine regimen, R gemox with rituximab, gemcitabine, oxaliplatin, ovarian cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, which is a fancy way of saying cancer of the gallbladder or bile duct. Uh, as a toxicity, um, as far as a toxicity profile goes for gemcitabine, it's a little bit boring. Uh, my slides on gemcitabine are pretty, pretty sparse when I'm teaching the notable toxicities for students. You know, it's dose-limiting toxicity, it's myelosuppression. In practice, thrombocytopenia seems to be uh, more dose-limiting. What you'll often see is patients will come in for, say, uh, their day 15. So they get it day 1, day 8, they come in for their day 15, their week 3 gemcitabine, and their platelet count is, is say, like 30-something and too low to receive that dose of gemcitabine. So in practice, that seems to be dose-limiting. If you look at the phase 1 studies, you'll find that just broadly myelosuppression is the dose-limiting toxicity. Now the other, I think, unique one that's worth knowing is rarely, I mean rarely, rarely, and this is one of these ones you probably don't counsel pages on, but is one you should be aware of, is that gemcitabine is one of the handful of chemotherapy drugs that can cause hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, HUS, or TTP, thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura, kind of a thrombotic microangiopathy. So if somebody comes in uh, with gemcitabine, they have a really exaggerated thrombocytopenia, and they've got some petechiae, you should be worrying about TTP or HUS, along with some renal dysfunction can cause some hepatotoxicity, some, a little bit of pulmonary toxicity is described in some edema, capillary leak syndrome, which uh, are probably not all that clinically relevant. One that is probably worth counseling patients about is flu-like symptoms that can happen, uh, you know, say for, for half a day following a dose of gemcitabine, uh, and is lowly emetogenic, um, so it doesn't require uh, a real aggressive anti-emetic prophylactic uh, cocktail of, of drugs. Uh, generally fairly well tolerated by patients. Um, it's a, it's a solid drug, um, maybe not an exciting drug, but one that is commonly used in our armamentarium in treating cancer and one that we should all uh, be aware of. So that's it. Short one today. How about that? Uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at PharmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram uh, at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.